that you would even perhaps confront us with our own sin and, and uh, your glory and your grace. Um, Lord, and uh, just also the, the magnitude of your holiness. Uh, pray, Lord, that would hang over us uh, this hour. Uh, Lord, we pray for your blessings upon this time and be glorified in us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to David and Bathsheba, and uh, you all know this story. Um, this is perhaps, uh, when you think of David, you likely think of either David and Goliath, or you think of David and Bathsheba. This is one of the most infamous moments in David's life, one of the most uh, infamous things that he's done, one of the things that people remember him by, and it's associated with his name. It's the subject of, uh, of a number of books and movies, um, and even an episode of VeggieTales, I believe. Um, and so, the, so not only is it significant in terms of just how it plays out in the memory that follows, but it's also significant in, in the narrative itself. Um, and this uh, passage serves as a narrative transition in Samuel. Up to this point, the narrator has uh, portrayed David as this innocent, not in the sense of sinless, but innocent in, in the sense of taking Saul's throne, He's innocent of, of Saul's blood and all those who follow Saul and his, uh, and his enemies. Uh, he's presented as righteous. He's presented as the covenant king. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7. And uh, we've seen uh, throughout all of this that David is a man after God's own heart. Well, now we reach a point in the narrative where things change. We have a narrative transition. The trajectory has been going one way, and now it is altered by David's sin. David is now presented as the law-breaking king. He is an unrighteous king in this sense. He's a man of deception and of moral weakness. And what we have here is the narrator narrating David's descent into sin. This uh, passage here is, uh, the, the transition is in this trajectory is so clear. And what we'll see following uh, one author, he lists um, just the sinful and evil acts that follow David's fall that we'll, that we'll study here in the near future in the coming weeks. We'll see that his baby dies. His beautiful uh, daughter, Tamar, was raped by her half-brother, Amnon. Amnon was murdered by Tamar's full brother, Absalom. Absalom came uh, to so hate his father, for uh, Father David, for his moral turpitude that he led a rebellion under the tutelage of Bathsheba's resentful grandfather, Ahithophel, and David's reign lost the smile of God. His throne never reigned, uh, regained its former stability. That's uh, R. Kent Hughes listing off the things that follow this, this transition, this terrible event. And so, with God's covenant promises uh, in the background in 2 Samuel 7... And David's law-breaking here in the foreground, I think the narrator is also pushing us to look forward, to look forward to this promised Davidic son who will be obedient. The passage is also um, culturally, uh, currently relative, uh, uh, related to us and relative to us. Uh, we live here in America, we live in a Canaanite culture. Up is down, down is up. We live in, uh, in a culture that worships the body. Um, and, and part of that is sex. Sex is at the center of, of American culture. 
Uh, it's, it's no shock, really, that, that porn is so prominent in our culture, and uh, we're so just inundated with, with bathing Bathshebas wherever you look, whether it's on the grocery store, scrolling down your, uh, through your phone, uh, driving down the road, they're everywhere. Um, and this is, this is also um, a pervasive problem in the church today. Um, and so we have a very significant passage for us this morning. Um, and the approach that I want to take is, is to chart, to look through, to look at David's descent into sin. What we'll see is David descending from idleness to temptation to lust to adultery to a cover-up with deception, and then finally, murder. And the focus, the chief focus I want to look at this morning is, is David's heart in each one of these. The structure of our passage, um, I see uh, verses 1 through 5. If you look at the handout, I've got it uh, blocked off according to this structure. Um, verses 1 through 5, you have just David and Bathsheba. Verse 1 will deal with David's idleness. Verses 2 through 5, David's lust and adultery. Uh, verses 6 through 13 will be David's cover-up with deception. 14 through 25, David's cover-up with murder. And then finally, 26 through 27, the aftermath. So that's, that's our task this morning. So let's open up by first looking at the first five verses of 2 Samuel 11. So if you will read along with me. It says, In the spring of the year... The time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself for uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So, Right off the bat, we need to take notice that this is set within the historical context of what we saw last week, Israel's war uh, with the Ammonites. Um, and as, um, as Dan uh, showed us last week, the Ammonites had formed an alliance with surrounding cities of Israel, and Israel had demolished this alliance. We saw that in, I believe, verse 14, Joab, the commander of the army of Israel, he goes back to Jerusalem, and the Ammonites, they retreat to their city, Rabbah. Now, it is springtime, right? And spring is the time, as the narrator tells us, this is a time when kings go out to battle. However, Israel's king stays home, right? So the wintertime is significant because this is when the winter, or the springtime is significant because this is when the winter rain stops, and it's not yet time to har to, for time for harvest. So there's a lot of idle men around, so this is the time to go out and expand your power. The passage is also um, a critique of David. So, uh, so we see here that it's during the season when kings go out to battle, but Israel's king stays home. We have Joab, his servants, and all of Israel go out to battle, but David stays in Jerusalem. The narrator doesn't tell us why David stays home. 
he just leaves these details to the imagination of the reader. But what he does do is he presents David here as an idle king, lounging on his couch, pacing around on his rooftop. And I think that this really reflects where David's heart is at this point in the narrative. He is neglecting, I believe, his covenantal duty to fight with Israel to go out to battle. And he's neglecting this for the leisure of his own couch. And what happens is David is in a position where he is ripe for a mighty fall. And this is what happens. So as David, we see in verses 2 through 5, as he paces his, the rooftop, he spots a beautiful woman bathing. And what happens, his idleness instantly turns to temptation. An idle moment, temptation rears its ugly head. We don't see this necessarily. This is a very compressed narrative, but I think we can bring in other scripture to help us understand what's going on with David and his heart. Um, think of James 1, 14 through 15. I think this is um, illustrative for this passage. James writes, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think this progression that James uh, shows here, I think this is a progression that we can infer that is here in, the David, in David's fall. So the first thing here is to note that the act of uh, the, this being tempted itself is not necessarily a sin. Sin is determined by what you do in the midst of being tempted. There's a, there's a famous um, encounter with Luther uh, where a young man asks Luther what he's supposed to do in the midst of being tempted. And Luther's advice is you should follow the advice of a hermit who was approached by a young man complaining of having lustful thoughts and other temptations. The old man told him, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head but only let them fly. Don't let them nest in your hair. See, Luther's point here is that you can't necessarily control where your mind or your heart, where they're pulled to, but you can choose uh, what to do. Uh, You can choose not to actively go in that particular direction. And what we see is that David, he allows the birds to nest in his hair, and he falls into lust. So his idleness has led him to temptation, and his temptation has led him to commit lust. Rather than fleeing this moment of temptation and going to the Lord in prayer, David allows himself to be lured and enticed by his own desires, and he commits the sin of lust. Well, what, what is lust? I think we all have a general idea of it. Um, we know that lust is this, it's an intense, it's an intense longing, and oftentimes it's uh, uh, sexual in nature. Um, the, the terms that Scripture uses for, for lust or for desire, these can be used in either a, in a good sense or even in a, in a bad sense, in a sinful sense, as we typically think of. If you, if you will, flip to the back of the um, handout I've given you a couple of definitions that I want to, uh, to look at. So the first one is from uh, Dan Ollander. This is a quote from John Freeman's book, Hide or Seek. He says, the word, so lust or desire, can be used to describe a legitimate, godly desire. Strong, passionate, eager desire or lust is not inconsistent with God's purpose for our lives. On the other hand, we know from the Bible, from experience, 
that strong desire or lust can be immoral and destructive. Destructive lust is any consuming desire that is either out of bounds or out of balance. An out of bounds lust is a desire for any person or object or idea that is inconsistent with God's expressed desire for our life. An out of balance lust is any legitimate desire that blocks our ability to serve God and others. This is, I think, um, a very um, significant quote, a very um, insightful quote that we see, first of all, like just as I said, the desires of our heart are not necessarily bad, right? Uh, in fact, um, desires of our hearts, these are, I think, oftentimes gifts from God and, and are necessary to a necessary part of just being human. Um, recently, I, I read through um, George Herbert's um, uh, complete English works, and, uh, and, and in this volume, uh, he's got a list of what he calls outlandish proverbs, and this made me think of one of his proverbs that he wrote down. It says, he begins to die that quits his desires. And I think there's so much truth in that, right? Um, and in, and also, um, our desires, as I said, I think they're also a gift from God. God has given us the desire for love, for intimacy, and even sexual expression. And these are all gifts from the Creator. However, these desires can be co-opted by sin. And this is what happened with David. And it happens with us so often. And I love how he, um, how he identifies um, two areas or two ways in which sin can co-opt our desires. First, he says that, they, that our desires can become out of bounds. See, what determines whether or not your desire is sinful is, is that to which it is pointing at, its object, right? If its object is, um, is, a, right, um, is, is a right object, then it's not necessarily sin. But whenever our, um, our desires, our motivations are directed towards something that is necessarily, in this case, out of bounds, that it, then it becomes sin, so in this case, an out-of-bound desire is a desire for things that are outside of God's law and God's provisions. Um, what do you think, like, what would be an example that comes to mind when we think of out-of-bounds desires? What do you think? Think of the case here with Bathsheba and David. His desire is obviously out of bounds, right? His desire is now for someone else's spouse. Right? But, if, but if our desire is directed towards our spouse, it's not necessarily an out-of-bounds desire. There's also out-of-balance desire. Right? These are legitimate desires that can become distorted or even too intense. So, for example, lashing out in anger when your spouse doesn't want to have sex. Your desire for sex has become out-of-balance. Well, sinful lust is also um, a condition of our own heart. Look at the second definition. This is from Freeman himself. He says, lust is that heart hunger in me that desires and disavows those made in the image of God, whether it's another man or another woman, and reduces them to what I can get out of them to feed and fill my hungry heart right now. This means by nature our lusts twist devour, consume, and use others for our own benefit. 
I, I really appreciate this definition and how it shows how lust, it comes from our heart and it reveals just also the condition of our heart. He calls it a heart hunger, right? That lust flows out from a heart that is not necessarily aligned with God. And it misplaces those desires for intimacy and love, which are ultimately to be found in God alone. There's a sense uh, also in which uh, as um, in the in moments of lust, there's a sense in which uh, it really highlights and shows this, our heart's disposition and how our heart's disposition is not necessarily directed to God and how it can be really confused um, by misplacing that. G.K. Chesterton, he has a, a statement about this. He says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Man who's knocking at the door of the brothel, he's looking for that intimacy. He's looking for um, that, um, I'll just stop with the intimacy, that, and that is, God, God has created him for that intimacy, but he is directing that to something other than God. Um, and so ultimately, this reveals, our sin reveals that there's something wrong at the root, and that at the root, it is, um, there's something wrong in our relationship with God, and that is going on, obviously, with David. We also see that lust here in this definition, there's something theological, too. Lust denies the image of God. It, it denies the dignity and the purpose of the person who is the object of lust, and lust even distorts reality, right? It twists and it devours and it consumes others for our own benefit. Well, David is, is definitely in the throes of lust, and there are two aspects to David's lust here that I want to consider. Uh, the first one is fixation. So David is out on his rooftop. He sees Bathsheba bathing, and instead of fleeing the situation, he stays, and he, uh, and he becomes fixated on Bathsheba. Uh, Hughes, uh, I think, captures this moment really well. He says, in that moment, David, who had been a man after God's own heart, became a dirty, leering old man. A lustful fixation came over him that would not be denied. See, whenever lust uh, takes over our hearts, we, we lose sight also of reality. We lose sight of, uh, of reality. We lose sight of, of God himself. And we delve into, uh, and we delve into sinful fantasy. Uh, Bonhoeffer, he has an interesting quote here too. He says, at this moment, at the moment of lust, God loses all reality. And Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And we see that going on with David. David forgets his true calling, and he forgets the consequences of breaking God's law. So the first one is fixation. He becomes fixated on Bathsheba, and, uh, and he allows his fantasies to take over. He then moves to rationalization. He begins to scheme. He begins to plot, even justify, acting on his sinful desires. Uh, the text doesn't tell us this, but perhaps David is thinking something along the lines of, this, this woman, she's clearly lonely, and she, she needs to be comforted. You know? Or maybe he's thinking, you know, no one will find out. Uh, besides, why would this necessarily be wrong? After all, I am the king. Uh, why shouldn't I have all the beautiful things of my kingdom? 
you know, she'll even likely feel honored to have gained my attention. And David's rationalization, he views Bathsheba really only as an object for his own self-gratification. It begins to distort reality. It begins to distort the law of God and Bathsheba's humanity for his own pleasure. You see, that desire has, uh, has distorted. It has uh, contorted all of reality to where instead of God being the object, David's own self-pleasure is the object of his desires. And everything that's around him gets distorted into that um, into that goal. Well, one of David's servants, he tries to dissuade uh, David. He says, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? But, but David, he, he does not listen to this. He does not, he, he's only willing to listen to the lies of his own heart. And he commands his servant to bring her to him. And his idleness has led him to temptation which led him to lust, and now to adultery. David's adultery of his heart gives birth to adultery of the body here. Throughout this little narrative, um, David is the aggressor. He is active. Look at, his, look at the verbs here. He takes her, brings her to him, and lays with her. David is the actor here. He is active. Bathsheba, she is passive. She's the victim. She came, she returned, and she conceived. And Bathsheba's only words in this whole narrative is, I am pregnant. Well, David here is obviously, he is presented as a law-breaking king. He has broken God's moral law on multiple counts. He has broken the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He's, com- he's broken the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. He has stolen Uriah's wife. And the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The note here that um, this parenthetical statement that Bathsheba, she was purifying herself of uncleanness, this is showing that Bathsheba is observing the ceremonial law that uh, when we went through Leviticus, we saw in Leviticus 15, that during these times, a woman is supposed to to cleanse herself, and in visiting her, uh, if you will, um, that creates a moment of, of... of uh, ceremonial uncleanliness. Um, It's also there to tell us this is how she got pregnant. (laughs) So so David has broken not only God's moral law, but also his ceremonial law. And much like all other sin, there are two aspects to this in the sin of adultery. One, David stands guilty before God. He has broken God's law. He is a lawbreaker. There's also a sense in which sin is a pollution. David is both morally impure and ritually impure. And he needs needs atonement. He needs a savior. But David does not recognize this need yet because he is so blinded by his own sin. So rather, he thinks he needs a cover-up. And so his idleness leads him to a moment of temptation, which leads him into lust, which leads him into adultery, And finally, now, into deception. Look at verses 6 through 13. It says, So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. 
Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. And he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. So David here, he attempts to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy by deceiving Uriah, um, which also is breaking the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so David's plan of deception is to give Uriah the opportunity to sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, which would make Uriah think that he is the father of the child. The only problem here with David's plan, his scheme, is that Uriah is an honorable and dutiful and pious man. You see that David makes two attempts here to, break Uriah, to get Uriah to break character. First, David commands Uriah to go down to his house and wash, and wash his feet. But Uriah disobeys David's order to go down to this house. Instead, he sleeps in the servants' quarters. The second one is David gets Uriah drunk. Yet, he still does not go down to his house. Instead, he sleeps on the couch with the servants. Um, I, think, I think these events here um, are significant for the narrative in, in two ways. In the first one, I think that David's schemes really indicate um, the sinfulness of his own mindset and his heart. I think David bases his scheme on the assumption of, this is what I would do if I were in Uriah's shoes. Yet Uriah is, is pious and honorable and dutiful. But Uriah, he is the Hittite, he is a foreigner, and he is more righteous here than David, the Israelite king. Look at what he says, his response to David, I think is really telling, in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Uriah's answer here is, is a stinging rebuke. But David, he is so numbed by his own sin that he does not feel that sting. Uriah's piety and honor is on display, while the ark, which represents the presence of the Lord and all Israel, are living in tents, except for David, who resides in his own house, Uriah can find no justification for going to his, uh, to his own house. That's a luxury that only a sinful king can afford. Uh, an interesting thing here is that Uriah surmises that David at least wants him to, wants to at least give him the opportunity to lay with his wife. You know, there's, uh, there's a possibility that uh, a number of commentators note that 
his command to go home and, and wash your feet is a euphemism for having sex. Um, I've, I've never tried that one before. Maybe, I don't know, we'll see. <laughs> uh, that's a good pickup line. Um, but Uriah is ever the dutiful and honorable soldier and refuses to visit his own wife. Um, and this is ironic because David, he has foregone all duty and honor by visiting Uriah's wife during this time. So ultimately what we see here is that Uriah, the foreigner, is more righteous than David, the king of Israel, even when he's drunk. This says a lot about David and his heart right now. Well, Uriah will not be deceived. So we see the next step in the progression. David in his idleness has fallen into temptation, which led him into lust, to commit adultery, to, uh, to try to deceive his neighbor and cover up his sin, and, uh, and now murder. Look at verses uh, 14 through 25. It says, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an, uh, an upper millstone on, uh, on him from the wall so that he died uh, at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had, said, had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your king's servants are dead. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So uh, a couple of observations here. Um, first of all, obviously, uh, it's, it's sad, it's ironic that David, he sends basically the, the, the order to hit a hit order uh, to carry out the murder of Uriah by Uriah's own hand. Um, and Uriah does this unknowingly. Uh, second, David commands uh, to have Uriah killed in the battle. This is now David breaking the sixth commandment, do not murder. Uh, third, in order for Joab to carry out David's order, or better, his hit, he must devise a risky, if not foolish, military strategy that entailed going near the wall of Rabbah. This is a military tactic that all Israelite commanders likely knew and likely learned to avoid from the story of Abimelech in Judges 9. 
as we see mentioned here. Fourth, Joab's plan proves to be too aggressive. It comes at the cost of some soldiers. So not only does Uriah die, but other soldiers. Fifth, Joab diffuses David's anger and confusion about this reckless tactic by telling him that Uriah is dead. Clearly, Joab's reckless tactic is carried out in the service of David's interest and not the military objective uh, to bring down Rabbah. And David's response is just absolutely horrifying. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So David, he likely knew that Joab was not going to be happy about David's command to kill one of his best commanders. We'll learn later on in 2 Samuel chapter 23 that Uriah is one of the, uh, one of the valiant 30, the great soldiers of Israel. And Joab would not be happy about having to put him to death. David also wants to encourage Joab and his comment about the sword here devouring one at one point, another at another, is a way of saying that, well, Uriah would likely have been killed anyways, so don't, uh, don't worry about it. And then lastly, David, uh, to David, the murder of Uriah should not be a matter that displeases Joab. However, as we'll see here in a second, this is a matter that displeases the Lord. So finally, the aftermath. Look at these last two verses. When the wife of Uriah heard that uh, Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. By the thing, uh, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So Bathsheba, she mourns the death of her husband. David marries her, and she bears his son. And most notably, the Lord finally shows up in this passage. This is the first time, the first mention of the Lord. And it says, this displeased the Lord. So whereas the matter was pleasing to David, it displeased the Lord. And so throughout this whole chapter, David is the focal point. He is the one who is the chief actor. And God is now mentioned um, at the end, and it shows, I think, just how far David had drifted from the Lord. So how, how is it then that David got to this point? I think that's a, a significant question to ask. As I said, up to this point, David's been um, shown to be a righteous king, a covenant king, a man after God's own heart. And we need to step back and ask, how on earth, how on earth did this happen? How on earth did this guy um, get to this point? How, how did his heart become so callous to the ways of the Lord? Think, of, think in the past of the things that David did and said, especially when it came to Saul. Think of his great faith and trust in the Lord, that God would dispose of Saul and be faithful to him to fulfill the promises that he would become king of Israel. But how did he get to this point to where he commits adultery and even murder? Well, I think it's safe to say that David's actions um, um, are linked to and are a result of him taking many wives um, when he became king over Israel. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, we read, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. This was a direct violation of God's command that Israel's future kings should not take many wives because that would turn their heart away from the Lord. And this is what has happened. So David, he did not wake up this morning, that morning, determined to commit adultery. He did not go out on the roof looking for a beautiful woman to take as a new 